I was uh before I reached out to you, I guess what is it, like a week now or two? Um I was like, Yeah, man, it's been a it's been a while. There's a lot of stuff going on. And um yeah, I feel like now at this point we're probably probably like every like three or four months um having you on and yeah, there's been a lot to you know that has happened. Um and I know Ukraine and, and Russia will probably take the the meat of this conversation, but we're gonna, you know, dive into other stuff. Um, just off the bat, though, because uh, I think I said st- this to you on the phone when we sp- spoke. Um, but I I think what's different than the last uh, three times you've been on is um, those ones, like with what was going on, I wasn't ready to say this, but I feel pretty, I feel that it's safe to say now that between Zelensky and, and Putin, that um, the only way this this ends is with, uh, unfortunately, basically just like with, like one of them will be dead. Like there, I think, I think mm. we're at a point where like, I think like like to say that six months ago I think would have been uh an exaggeration. And I think like really what really what I'm saying is that the consequences of not diffusing something early is that it it does eventually get to this point where there's no turning back. And especially on 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 Putin's end, there's just no way that this ends today. He remains uh, president of Russia, and it's just like, oh, one big fucking oopsie, back to normal. There's just, there's just no way there. And and, um, you know, so 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 I, I feel I feel firm in saying that now, like like that, and I and would like to to say that like that is a different opinion than saying that World War Three is inevitable. Like what 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 I'm saying is like there's no going back to a to there's just no going back to whatever the reality was uh in february of of 2022 uh there you know before there's just no going back to that that's for sure now um still doesn't mean that like world war three is around the corner and i don't you know i i think Zelensky is as firm as ever in that um he does not uh and i i think I think anyone would feel this way in his position that he did not seeing negotiating pieces of your land as like an, as, a, as like a negotiation. Um, th- I think that's fair from his, you know, point of view. Um, Cause I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him. People like, Oh yeah, just like let Russia have this like village or two and fucking call it a day. Um, but uh, I think it's, I think it's also fair to say that, that Russia has done enough to show that like on a, existential level they believe they need to occupy ukraine um so uh, you know because of that like if, if for anyone you know uh, for anyone who's ever been in a fight with someone who really wants to fight them and you don't really want to fight and you realize and then like like so you're fighting in like the first minute of that fight you're nowhere like near as aggressive or pissed as them because like they really want to fight you. But then eventually like you get really pissed that this person wants to fight you. And like now both of you really want to kick each other's ass. I think that's where Putin and Zelensky are at at this point for sure. Um, And anyway, I'll end this monologue in a second by just saying that I think one of the more interesting things that have happened since this has happened uh, since our last conversation is that um, Ukraine is, is definitely bringing it to, um, to Russia, uh, it, you know, uh, n- nowhere nearly as severely, obviously, as Russia has brought it to them. But like the, the drone st- strike here and there, like a few drone strikes uh, happened in Moscow. Um, and uh, this guy, I was listening on to a podcast, I think he said it best is that like it's more of a that like Ukraine's goal is to bring the war to the Russian people and remind them that like, you're not, this is like not just our land that's being hit. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, without further ado though, I will uh, introduce Steve here. Who's been very patient, just quietly sitting, but I'm uh, really excited to have this conversation, man. 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'm I'm Steve Swordlow, um, human rights lawyer and a professor at USC in Los Angeles, where I teach human rights and courses about human rights, specifically in this region. We're talking about Eurasia, Russia, Ukraine, Central Asia, the Caucasus. And first, it's a pleasure, it's an honor to come see you, OC. And I'm back to school, and I'm back to OC. So <laughs> September is the time for beginnings. Um, and you're right, a lot has transpired since we last saw each other. It's been a hot summer in many regards in terms of this war. And I think as we'll get to later in the conversation probably is the the way the war is the commentator class in this country, including the political class, and the lead up to next year's elections has meant that there are many, there's a lot of attempts to find shortcuts out of this war or to reduce it into some really grotesque and overly simplistic picture um, and a lot of cynicism and a lot of understandable frustration. But, you know, just to review some of the latest um, data points that we have on the war that you just went through, I mean, there was a leaked report that found its way into the New York Times about two weeks ago that said that, uh, again, this was leaked, so we don't have the exact figures, but the leak was that 500,000 casualties, 300,000 on the Russian side, 200,000 on the Ukrainian side have already taken place since February 2022. That's both injured and and deaths. And it's a, those are catastrophically huge numbers, just reminding us that this really is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Yeah. Um, and so that's one data point. Of course, we know that the numbers of refugees fleeing Ukraine uh, long ago reached about 15 million, so largest refugee outf outflow migration movement and also in recent history. Um, some other things that have happened, major developments, we saw an attempt, probably the greatest threat to Putin's rule in his over 20 years in power was this mutiny, whatever you want to call it, a mutiny or a coup or a rebellion that was launched by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's now recently been assassinated in, in murky circumstances and a plane that was shot down uh, when it was flying from Moscow to St. Petersburg. But Prigozhin's mutiny has major implications for how we understand Russia, how we understand um, just how isolated and paranoid and scared, quite frankly, I think Putin is and rightfully should be, given that there's now in Russia been, um, although it was short-lived and really only lasted 24 hours, there was a, a rebellion with troop movements that were marching towards Moscow, a whole major city called Rostov, was occupied for more than a day. The military headquarters in Russia, from which most of the operations into Ukraine are launched, was taken over. And this was shocking to even those of us like me that have followed Russia for a long time. But you know, in terms of what you were saying at the start, I think you are right about that. Now, of course, it's an it was an existential conflict the moment it began. I think Ukrainians and Zelensky... We have to give him a lot of credit. I mean, still, I think by now we've kind of gotten used to this fact, but we shouldn't we shouldn't overlook how significant it was that when the Russians invaded, that Zelensky took that fateful decision to stay in the capital, not to flee. Yeah. Imagine how many leaders would have would have left um, knowing that they were target number one. The fact that he stayed that really did change the course of this war forever. It inspired his people, and anyone who knows Ukraine and knows the Ukrainian spirit and knows something about the fight for democracy, not democracy. Of course, Ukraine has a lot of issues and deals with corruption, but the fight for democracy in Ukraine has been so hard fought for so many years that I think those of us that follow that and knew that spirit, we understood that this was going to be a life or death existential battle to defend this country to defend its very existence. And, you know, as we said, I think a few podcasts ago, uh, President Biden called this a genocide and he was right. So what what we have had an existential conflict, but I think what you're sensing now is that Putin's worldview has, it has certainly, it continues to harden. I mean, the longer you stay isolated, the more paranoid you become, um, especially after a coup. Yeah. Um, but 
In July, for example, we saw the former president of Russia, who is now the sort of lapdog of Putin. I don't know if you the name rings the bell. Dmitry Medvedev, he was the president uh, for a very short time when Putin left the presidency and appointed, basically appointed his prime minister as president. He then stayed in office for about four years and actually famously had cordial relations with Obama. Um, they actually managed to agree on some things. He then left office and moved into a position in the administration. But now this same individual for whom there's some nostalgia about, you know, an earlier time in U.S.-Russia relations, regularly threatens nuclear war against the West, Europe, talks about the need to roll tanks right into Berlin. So we have the president of, the former president of Russia, who of course is doing the bidding of Putin, threatening nuclear war just last month. And I think that wasn't the first time. So you talk about existential, you talk about end of the world, you talk about World War III. It's not too far off from, from what we're actually living through. We had the Kahovka Dam that was exploded in central Ukraine along the Dnieper, Dnipro River, which sent tons of radioactive waste um, into the Black Sea, affecting the ecosystem for generations to come. We also got some figures, I think, in the last 24 to 48 hours already telling us about how many people have been killed um, by cluster munitions, mm -hmm. mostly used by the Russians. But we can talk about you know, how the Ukrainians are, are using that weapon as well and have gotten it from President Biden recently. And actually, as we sit here in this studio, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, um, is in Kiev. He's spending the night there, which is sort of uh, really a sign of support. And he announced while he was in Kiev today uh, another, I think, more than a billion dollars of U.S. military yeah. aid going to Kiev. So everyone's in this for the long haul. And it, it looks very civilizational. It looks very existential. Um, and I think, you know, all political actors are trying to project the image that will be most advantageous. NATO and the U.S. and Biden want to show to Russia that they're not going anywhere, that they're going to stick with Ukraine, that they're going to continue in this fight no matter how slow this counteroffensive in the summer, mm. how, how much of a slog it has been. They're trying to signal to Putin, I think, most directly that we're not going away. Um, we're going to make you bleed. Um, and on the Russian side, um, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of bluster, um, but there's also, we've learned over the course of this summer, um, that some, I mean, maybe, I'm not a military analyst, but some people underestimated um, how competent, let's say that, the Russian defenses have been. The, mm. the trenches that they dug in in the east and south that they were allowed to occupy for more than a year, that gave them enough time to build these deep, deep trenches, to use cluster munitions, and they have been willing to send their own prison population, literally taking prisoners out of prisons across Russia and just throwing them onto the battlefield. They've been able to just throw human uh, cannon fodder onto the battlefield, and that has also made a huge difference. So Russia has been fighting, but you know we do have, from the Ukrainian perspective, a lot of, not, several bright spots, I should say. In the last few weeks, more and more news is emerging that despite, you know, maybe not achieving the high hopes that had been projected for this counteroffensive, but the Ukrainians have been retaking key villages in South and East Ukraine. And one thing we forget is that Russia has Ukraine surrounded almost on all sides, not on the West, but definitely in the Northeast, where Russia is trying to relaunch a southern push down into Kharkiv, um, Chernigiv. These are in the northern part of Ukraine. And then, of course, from the east and from the south and from the Black Sea. And then also, as we sit here today, more news that uh, more than 10 people, I think close to 17 at the time I checked, had already been killed in Kiev. So this is a bloody and uh, far-reaching conflict, which um, I should say, act of aggression, not conflict, um, which has touched every facet of life. In fact, if I'm lucky enough, I'm, and you know, if, if, if this works out, I'm hoping to spend time in Ukraine um, in the wintertime um, to show solidarity, to, to, to look more closely at the human rights situation, and actually to uh, maybe offer some, uh, some training to the next generation of human rights defenders in Ukraine. Uh, but I think it's really important, especially as I was saying, as we run up into this media environment that is going to be 
saturated with disinformation yeah. about Ukraine, a lot of misconceptions yeah. that we in this country and in this information environment that we educate ourselves and we understand both the ramifications of this of this war, but also what genocide, when I say that word, what it actually means. It mm -hmm. means that Ukrainians that have fallen under Russian occupation, they are tortured. They are sent to detention centers. Their cultural artifacts are systematically destroyed. One of the most historic churches in the port city of Odessa was bombed a few months ago. And these are the cultural artifacts and relics of supposedly Russian culture mm. that supposedly animates and drives Putin's desire to retake this territory. He is destroying the very cultural tapestry wow. that he wishes to reclaim for the great Russian nation. So it's sick mm. and it's twisted just like all wars are. But I think we just must remember that um, Ukraine is, albeit a, a, maybe a dysfunctional one and a fledgling one at that, it is a democracy. And so at the end of the day, it truly is about a democracy versus a dictatorship. Yeah. And uh, Putin and Zelensky, as you said in the beginning, they are ideological foes. Um, and I just I have to continue to give Zelensky a lot of credit. One last thing I'll say in the, in the beginning uh, comment here is that I found interesting. I was talking about this with my students the other day, that you know, being Ukrainian and being Russian, um, it's really easy to lose sight of um, how a national identity in a time of war is a really interesting question. But, you know, yeah, they're both Slavic peoples. They're both uh, majority Orthodox uh, Christians, right? Although Ukraine has a lot of uh, religious diversity and Greek Catholicism, other things. But what makes Ukrainian identity um, as embodied by Zelensky so different than the identity that Putin tries to mobilize. And I by no means want to say that your average Russian agrees with him. I think many Russians, many Russians, some agree with him, but many suffer in silence. Their idea of national identity is so different. Um, Ukraine's identity, its political identity, it's a civic identity. It's not a national, uh, nationalistic identity. Mm. Um, you can be a Jewish president like Zelensky, who just days ago, he replaced his defense minister with a Muslim Crimean Tatar as the defense minister. So Jewish president appoints Muslim defense <laughs> minister in Orthodox Christian Ukraine, right? So what's so interesting about Ukraine is they are building a civic identity. It's based on citizenship. It's based on, I think, what they see as their European orientation. And it's based on, you know, as, as much as they can aspire to be um, openness and transparency, although there are major, still major, major legacies of corruption that have to be dealt with. Whereas yeah. the Russian vision that Putin is propounding, that we're getting, that we're watching every day is dark, yep. it's deeply racist, and the irony of calling Ukraine Nazi uh, is that those are precisely the sort of nationalistic nationalistic tendencies we see on the rise in Russia. Hmm. In Russian schools that are writing, rewriting textbooks in a very nationalistic way. Um, there's a sort of imperial vision of history. This belongs to us. That belongs to us. Belarus is ours. Ukraine is ours. Um, Central Asia belongs to us. Don't mess with us there. Armenia is ours. And that vision is, it has to be, it has to be uh, resisted, I think, uh, yeah. in order for us to, to live in a world that is not consumed by imperialism and war. Yeah. Yeah, you know something you said um, uh, earlier in that is, is uh, you know, Zelensky choosing to stay in the capital, and it, it, I think what's to me what's really impressive in, about that is, um, I imagine that you Russia uh, before the war and probably even now, uh, uh, you know, only question is how far does it go up, but I'm I'm sure. Russia had um, a lot of uh, uh, intelligence officers in Ukraine um, that, you know, probably across all ranks in in their government, and I'm I'm I'm, it, it's really really impressive that Zelensky's people have stayed loyal enough that like, with all with like. In everything in, in Putin's power, um, the fact that he has not been assassinated yet, you know, or hopefully, hopefully never, but 
so far in this war, it's Th- that has to require s- mm. a, a great deal of loyalty from his people. I, ma- mm. I imagine, I mean, whether that that's like just paying people. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll, I imagine that Russia's intelligence capabilities in comparison to Ukraine is probably 10 to 1, if not more, in terms of just like raw numbers of officers that they can just deploy anywhere in the world. And and the fact that like a, a year plus in that, because I'm I'm sure if Putin had people on the inside in Ukraine that like always knew his whereabouts, I'm sure Zelensky would be gone. There's there's no strategic mm-hmm. reason to keep Zelensky alive. Um, so the fact that like he's he's like that he still is a like. Yeah, I mean that that must require a great deal of loyalty from his people. That that's actually it's crazy. I mean, being that they're neighbors, Russia's wealthier, bigger in in every way. Hmm. Um yeah, that that I mean, it's just you you just I don't know, you just don't see loyalty like that in in really ever anymore. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's so interesting. so many ways to look at how impressive both Zelensky and Ukraine as a whole have, I don't want to say performed, but have have handled this existential threat. It is true. I, again, it comes down to, I think, this gradual formation over 30 years of a civic identity in Ukraine that it wasn't necessarily uh, directly juxtaposing itself or um, you know uh, using Russia as a counterexample. But to some degree, these are the countries where that travel down two divergent roads. Ukraine very easily could have become Russia number two or or little Russia in the sense of corruption and cynicism and repression and dictator dictatorship. And, and it did suffer through various periods like that, um, in, although it's had a few revolutions. Yeah. Um, and again, no one is saying that the Maidan revolution of 2014 or even where Ukraine is now makes it a paragon of democracy or that it's somehow a utopian uh, state. By no means is it. But it, but I think we have to give major credit both to Zelensky's personal courage and obviously his political sophistication, which no one expected from someone who was a comedian, right, yeah. before taking on this position. Um, but also, as you said, you're right, it's, it's deep running. I mean, you meet Ukrainians here in L.A. Um, or Ukrainians in exile in Europe, or, you know, you talk to supporters of Ukraine who know Ukraine in the region I go to in Central Asia. And they all just seem to just, you can tell immediately that they all just seem to get it. They understand why they're fighting. They just understand what they're fighting for. They understand what will happen if Russia occupies them. So that's why it is so scary when this commentariat class, some of them professors like myself in the Ivory Tower, like to start talking about um, land exchanges or territory negotiations, because what that really is, is rewarding Russia's aggression and inviting Russia to invade more swaths of territory when it regains strength. So, Mm. you know, even if we were to see a pause in fighting and some ceding of territory, I mean, that would completely reward um, this dog-eat-dog, pre-1945, almost Hitlerian aggression. It would legitimize that. It wouldn't make us safer, but it would also consign the millions of Ukrainians stuck behind Russian lines to torture and being treated as enemies of the state. I mean, we know what's happened to the people in Crimea. Crimea was occupied by Russia in 2014. Uh, Hundreds, uh, if not thousands, were sent to prison on political charges. Many were tortured. Many um, Crimean Tatars, the indigenous people of that peninsula, were labeled uh, Islamic terrorists. Um, so we know what happens. And now in Kherson, Zaporizhia, and these areas that are occupied, there's an alternative reality. So, you know, there's when we hear frustration with the pace of this counteroffensive, like why isn't Ukraine pushing in more quickly? Why aren't they able to? Well, first, you know, war is hard and, uh, you know, the, the use of drones on both sides means that there's almost no element of surprise left mm. in terms of how the each side deals with the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is really about attrition. Um, but the other fundamental difference in the way the war is being fought on both sides is 
as I was saying, Russia can send people to die at will. And they have, like you just said, they have 10 times more population and resources to throw at this. Although, albeit not very motivated, I would say, which which makes a, a hell of a difference. But on the Ukrainian side, it's the opposite. Zelensky has said multiple times in public that he's not willing to just sacrifice people um, for the sake of gaining a few kilometers. That's why they're making this, what I think, I don't think it's the right choice, but that's how they justify using the cluster munitions um, as a way to, you know, as a substitute for sending their best people to die. And many of their best people have died. One of my, I think I talked to you about this on a previous podcast, one of my good friends in the human rights community, Maxim Budkevich, um, he recently got over 20 years. He was taken prisoner. He was a human rights defender that helped refugees in Ukraine. You couldn't find a more mild-mannered, uh, nerdy uh, lawyer guy. And when the war started, I said, how you doing? Uh, I'm wishing you support. And he said, Steve, I'm already in the defense forces. I can't tell you where I am, but I'm doing my, my patriotic duty. We have to defend the homeland. And I thought, okay, well, wow, more power to you. And then a, about a month or two later, I learned that he's been taken prisoner. And now just recently, I learned that he was uh, put on a, in a show trial and given over 20 years um, and was accused of espionage. And it was a trial that didn't coincide with any international standards, of course. And as a prisoner of war, he, should be, he shouldn't be tried at all. He hasn't committed any war crimes. But this is the reality of what happens to Ukrainians who are in Russia. We also know, you know the, about the deportation of thousands, tens of thousands of children. So Putin's willing to do absolutely anything to decimate this country. And I think we just can't become numb, despite the passage of time, to what, what's really happening. And, and one other thing that, you know, for the cynics out there that say that this is not vital to U.S. interests, well, and again, I come at this from a human rights perspective, from a moral perspective, and from understanding Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian democracy, but if you want to just get purely brass tacks about U.S.-Russia relations, well, Ukraine is fighting Russia and chipping away at its capabilities in a way that is immensely useful to U.S. strategic vital interests around the world. Russia wants to damage the U.S., and it is Ukraine that is paying that price, taking on that burden, and doing serious damage to Russia on a daily basis. Now, this drone war, that's the other thing that's really developed, is I think, you know, you can interpret that in a few ways. Um, The counteroffensive has been slow. It's been frustrating for Ukraine. Um, And it's also been frustrating, I think, for Ukraine that the world hasn't supported it enough um, despite all the pronouncements, they haven't been given the F-16s they needed early in this conflict. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, again, it might seem strange that a human rights professor is calling for arming a country, but we're talking again about the right to exist, the right to life, right? You can't have other human rights if you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should have provided the essential uh, defense capabilities, mm-hmm. the types of things that we provide to Israel, for example, mm-hmm. to Ukraine much, much earlier uh, better late than never, but in order to, I think, counteract that asymmetry in warfare, um, and also maybe just by virtue of the f- sense that Russia has been so dastardly and cruel, I think the Ukrainians are quite justified in saying we will hit back at military recruitment setters. Um, and to some degree, yeah, I think the drone warfare is a psychological weapon to inflict fear uh, or to send the message to the Russian population that you know, hey, you didn't stand up to Putin when you had the chance. Um, so this is your war, and you are killing us. You, your sons are coming over to our country and 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 raping our our women and and destroying our culture and our city. So you know what? You can't continue to go shopping on the weekends at the Russian version of IKEA. There may be a drone attack here. There may be a drone attack in Pskov or near Saint Petersburg, or in the south. And so it's quite dangerous to be in Russia on a number of levels, but Ukraine is is making that clear as well. Mm. Um, so drones are another aspect of this war that we have to take stock of. It's a new way of fighting war, and I wish it wasn't necessary, but I think that Ukraine has to sort of punch above its weight, has to find some way around the fact 
that it doesn't have the air superiority. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yet have those jets, although they're getting some of them. Um, and am I, am I, you want to come in on this? I just, oh, yeah. I, no, absolutely. I, I'm speaking a lot. No, um, no, it's all good. <laughs> hey, that's why I hear. But, um, yeah. uh, on top of that, cause yeah, they were, uh, recently, um, given those S 16s, but I, I then, uh, read that the issue with that is that there's a, um, the, you have to have, um, infrastructure in place to maintain F-16s, you have to like create the the uh, landing strips, the takeoff, like you have to like create facilities for them. So it's not like, oh, like, um, you know, mm. like we, yeah. we just give it to them and then like they can just put someone in the plane. Um, there's like a whole bunch of shit that has to be, routes have to be established, like at all types of shit. And, and a lot of people have to be, um, on the same page with everything, like where all this is happening. And, um, so yeah, yeah. That's, that's all true and not to interrupt, but I think yeah. that, uh, imagine, think about the motivation of the American people and the American government in the days after Pearl Harbor when, you know, I think, yes, that's all true. Yes. Those, uh, that training needs to be delivered. Those facilities need to exist, but we are not in the position of needing to literally defend ourselves from being killed at every moment by yeah. the Russian army. And so I think that level of motivation, again, that's something that everyone really underestimated about Ukrainians' uh, ability to fight and their determination to, 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 to not give up and mm -hmm. to not give in. And I think that means that they've been much quicker to master the technology, including on the F-16s, than, yeah. than anyone really expected. Oh, yeah, and I, and I was mostly yeah. saying that in that, like, yeah. when, when people see Zelensky's uh, mm. frustration, um, is that he's thinking about that as well, and that, like, well, you know, if you drag your feet, you know, let's say they, they if asking for the F-16s now means, like, hopefully by November, December, we're actually ready to, like, use them. So I think I think a lot of people that read these stories Think like like think that okay we give them tanks now they have the tanks like today they have the tanks and they're it's like okay it's gonna take a while for the tanks to get there uh, and you have to train them to use so like that's I think that explains Zelensky's urgency um, in that like like he's thinking about that and that like there's this delay in in the entire process. Um, like granting it is a granting these things is the first step, and then like getting the, his actual military trained and ready to use them is a whole other uh, step. So uh, the the further that granting them is delayed, the further the, the, like the longer it takes for them to be able to actually use that stuff. Because I think they were saying, um, yeah, they were just approved for uh, F-16s like a few weeks ago, but it, it looks like they won't be, the estimations like they won't actually be ready to use them until sometime like October, November. So like it, it so that that's why he's so like, um, you know, he just, he wants shit moving, you know? So um, yeah, and it'll be, it'll be interesting because I, I, I do, I do think that the concern for, keep for uh like some people in the west thinking that you know the more that we arm them the more that the war itself um escalates completely that russia uh, then becomes justified to use certain weapons if ukraine has access to this and um i don't know i mean it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to gauge at at this point and and i think you know Moving on to another thing that you and I had talked um, about on the phone, because that's something like, like I feel like you have to be like a real military expert to to understand in terms of like what's the history of arming one side in preparation for this? Like how is that like turned out? I just don't know that. But um, something that I think, um, uh, especially being that probably mostly Americans are going to listen to this episode, in terms of um, you know when you hear that like okay B Ukraine has been given a billion dollars today or uh, has been given these uh, weapons. I think two things can be true in that you can look at America's, for example, 
veteran situation and say veterans shouldn't be fucking homeless after they've dedicated their lives to fighting for their country and then like they come back and they're treated like shit that's absolutely true and then secondly um all the money that goes to ukraine um you know uh, again i was saying this to you like there's not this like there's not this like giant vault full of money and where like if Biden needs money for like a hot dog, he goes to that vault or if he needs money to like give to Ukraine, he's going to the same vault. Like it's <laughs> like there's their military has a budget that's already approved. And and again, you can have I think it's fair to say, oh, the military has too much money to fuck around with that. That is a that is a fair assessment. But I think Americans have to realize it's the it's the it's the headlines telling you that like we're stealing that like politicians are like taking money that should be for you should be for veterans and are giving them to Zelensky it's that because that 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 the again these budgets the military budget is already like it's mm, already I'll set in it. stone they're pulling money yeah. from a place where that money is for the military so like that, there was no fucking chance. The forty-two billion so far that has gone to Ukraine, there's literally no chance that mm. any of that money would have gone to again. For example, veterans. There's just so like getting that, and and it's crazy because a lot of people are gonna vote based on that in 2024. Like a lot of people really think that like having Trump in office means that like all that Ukraine money is going to go to us. So like there there's like just a whole and I and I I actually think like this yeah. is one of the clearest examples of propaganda oh, yeah. I've ever seen in my life. No, and the irony is so clear because Trump's defense budget was larger than any mm. ever in history plus his tax cut, the largest and deepest in US history, took so many resources out of social programs and our 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 citizens future that, I mean, really it is the height of hypocrisy to make that argument. And it's just a talking point. You're right. And I mean, it's such an important point that you make, Osi, about that it's not an, not an either or. Um, and I think, I mean, unfortunately, a lot will depend on how the media, the sound bites they choose to focus on, the way the, this, uh, the, the, the extent to which these Republican candidate and primary conversations are legitimized or normalized, or if Trump remains in the election up until the very end, we're going to get a heavy dose. As you said, you, you said the right word, propaganda. We're just going to be fed propaganda again and again and again. And unfortunately, again, Ukraine and Ukrainians, I don't think they should be the scapegoats for certainly a really, a really important conversation about how the American economy functions and the, there's so many issues that need to be dealt with. Um, and I feel like, I think we also talked about this, that coming out of COVID, there are really deep wounds in our society. There's a vacuum, uh, a deep hunger for real information. And that, that vacuum and that gap can be filled with really dangerous uh, talking points. And so while we, we, we certainly do need to address the ballooning defense budget, I think that is, as you said, both can be true. That That is very important. And it's long been a concern. We do not need the Pentagon to have the types of resources that it does in order to be the world's most successful and powerful military. At the same time, though, to allow Putin's aggression to go unpunished, to allow him simply to swallow up a democracy that is a real U.S. ally and has been for many years now, although it's not formally a member of NATO, is a serious mistake that I think invites uh, war and suffering and darkness uh, for generations to come. And, and uh, you know, also, let's be clear, we should have learned something about genocide. I mean, let's bring it back a little bit to the responsibility to protect. That's what we call it, responsibility to protect R2P. What that basically says, that doctrine, is that all countries on, on Earth have a responsibility to, to prevent genocide, first of all, to prevent it, to not allow it to begin in the first place. But once it does happen, if those countries are unwilling to take action, in this case, Russia is perpetrating and is unwilling to stop, there has to be some collective action. And in this case, it's not direct fighting, it's not U.S. troops on the ground, but it's support for a democracy, it's support for a defense of a people from a genocide. And I, I think that's a really clear obligation, something we should have learned from Rwanda, 
something we should have learned from uh, Bosnia, something we should be looking at also in terms of how Myanmar is treating the Rohingya. It's something we should think about in terms of uh, the Tigray region of Ethiopia. We cannot allow so many genocides to happen around us. Mm -hmm. um, we have so many right now. I'm teaching a class on this, but at, at USC, unfortunately, we're living in a worse time when it comes to genocide than, than ever before. Um, and we'll get to, you know, I think talking about uh, the Armenia-Azerbaijan situation soon. But just to, just to say, if you think about it, Syria or the Yazidis in Iraq or the Rohingya in Myanmar, or as I said, Ethiopia. And you, Ukraine is just in a way the, the most clear case of one country invading another and committing genocide. So I think we have to maintain in the American media and in this run-up to 2024 some clarity, some moral clarity about what is really at stake. Yeah. And um, I don't think supporting this defense of people's lives in any way makes it less possible for the U.S. to deal with the border crisis or to handle um, you know, domestic woes and support, support U.S. citizens. I mean, yeah. that, you're, you're right, veterans... But it's it's not that dichotomy is false. Yeah, and we need to push back on all that disinformation because that's that's what it is. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's I, I think a, a, a few things. So I I, I want to get into um, Armenia as well, and I, I like one I, I not just the, the veterans, but I, I've seen it being used as an example for um, everything uh, that Americans are feeling right now, and I think like this is a you know if I were. Uh, an enemy of America, this is a, a perfect time to mm. get, you know, to stir shit up because uh, a housing market is fucking ridiculous right now. Mm. The price of everything is ridiculous. So you can literally just say like, oh man, you know, look at Biden sending Zelensky a billion dollars while like Americans struggle to afford homes and pay rent and pay back their student loans and like, like you can use all. And again, two things can be true is that like, we have a problem here in this country, like economics, like that's totally true. And that, that also just has nothing to do with the money. I, and I, I think uh, some important numbers here. I think, um, I believe we've only used 6% of the military budget on the Ukraine uh, 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 conflict so far. Um, mm. And uh, um, though, I will say though, that um, we, oh man, I, I wanna make sure I'm getting this right. In the total amount of years um, that we spent um, uh, fighting uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, after 2001, we have already passed the total amount of money spent on that war. Uh, we've already passed that with Ukraine. So it is, a, it is a very expensive conflict. It is definitely expensive, but again, that's not coming from like, that, that money is like not like. Yeah, but yeah. you know, it's so interesting looking at, I mean, that context obviously colors and guides the sentiment in this country about support for Ukraine. And, and that's, that's understandable. I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan are deep wounds in our society that we've never really dealt with. And obviously the way the U.S. left Afghanistan um, and to see the resurgence of the Taliban, to see the way the Taliban have basically imposed medieval times um, on the entire, uh, on an entire gender in, in the last two years, it's been really disheartening and, and it's understandable that that would be seen as a waste. Um, although obviously it's much more complicated than that um, when you see that some of the gains made for Afghan women and civil society were important. Um, and of course the security, national security objectives um, to some degree were successful. Um, but, you know, Iraq was fundamentally premised on an illegal invasion and on a lie. People don't remember that. It's been a while now. We've got to remind ourselves, 2003, that the run-up to that war, the invasion of Iraq, was premised on a lie that there were weapons of mass destruction. And really what it unleashed was years of continuing chaos in Iraq. Afghanistan also very deeply flawed, but I think this is not that. Yeah. Ukraine is absolutely not 
the United States uh, occupying Ukraine, trying to nation build Ukraine. Na- Ukrainians can do that on their own. Mm-hmm. And I think we just need to be clear that, um, I, and I think this is, in a way, it coincides more with Biden's vision of US, the U.S. role in the world, U.S. foreign policy, mm-hmm. which is to support partners, but he certainly was not a fan of the long-standing occupation or uh, presence of American forces in Amer- in Afghanistan or in, Af- in Iraq. Yeah. And so he kind of made his signature and his stamp, although it was traumatic and poorly handled, on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So I think he sees the support for Ukraine as a pretty economic, as a pretty good investment, you know, mm-hmm. of, of long-term U.S. interests. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Yeah. Actually, yeah. Um, that's another thing, another thing where... Um, uh, that's kind of like I've noticed. That's one of the the themes of like deciphering, uh, you know, the news in America is is like going back to this like two things can be true at once <laughs> understanding. Because yeah. yeah. another thing with Biden, you know, now you, now that you mentioned Biden, two things can be true in the sense that like he may have had some shady shit going on with Ukraine on a personal like financial level. That might be true, but that to say that like that is the that that is the entirety of like the energy and motivation uh, for supporting Ukraine in the war is just like it it's so false. Just know is, that is like, that the accusation? Yes, then? that is like 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 people are like oh because <laughs> of like the like Hunter Biden Hunter at Biden's... some point did business with Ukraine and. Right. Biden like made some money off of it too. That like that is like what that explains everything you're seeing with the U.S. and Ukraine relations right now, and it's just such a like, it's such a. Um, I actually kind of feel bad for people in the sense that like, in the, like that like to, I think it's I think it's partially coming from a good place for a lot of people that they they desperately want to make sense of all this. That like they want a reality mm. where it can be mm. that simple, mm. right. They, like, right? You know what I mean? Like, like oh yeah, like Biden had business with them, so like that's why this is all happening. You know what I mean? Like, you know, oh see, it like it just drives home the argument about why I should have more students who want to study and understand Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, right? Because mm. if you think about it, the same thing is true for Trump in that we look at his presidency and his and his perfect phone call in quotes. With Zelensky, if we remember back to the oh, yeah. the, the the first impeachment, not the second impeachment. Yeah. <laughs> the first impeachment was about Ukraine, and even Trump's election 2016 was about uh, very much tied to Russia's meddling in Facebook during the election. And now we have this whole conversation about Hunter Biden, which is also much of it based on disinformation. But I, I certainly don't want to um, say that there wasn't a conflict of interest uh, while you know while being vice president. And promoting very much an anti-corruption agenda, which I think Biden did well in Ukraine. To have your son um, having that sort of relationship in Bur- with Burisma, this this company, obviously, um, if not a conflict of interest, it suggests or is the appearance of a conflict of interest. And you know, we're having that conversation about our Supreme Court justices, so there's certainly no reason we shouldn't have that conversation about about our elected officials. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it is, you're, you're probably right. There's a soul searching, there's a searching for easy answers yeah. in the American public. Yeah. And somehow Hunter Biden, is this really yeah. convenient not from the scapegoat, people, right? Not from the people yeah. like stirring it up, but from the people that are like Just eating reacting it. And yeah, like, yeah, and like really like, like taking mm. that in. Yeah. I think part of that is like, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think, uh, uh, I don't think we're, we are, trained to dig deep into a I think we're like looking for very quick causes and effects. I mean, the, the very first one was um, uh, uh, NATO uh, was moving in on uh, Russian territory. And that is why, like, that was like the very first, like, simple cause and effect understanding of a war. I think we talked about that on our very yeah, first conversation. Very, yep, very first yeah. one was like, was like, hey, like, I, and I asked you too, because I was very like, well, that makes sense in my head too. If if there's some, and and yes, again, and like that's what makes it complex is like, yes, um, uh, there uh, years ago, America did say that they weren't going to do something that they are currently doing. That's actually true. That That is true. That There was an agreement uh, years ago that they weren't going to move in on that territory and we did 
that that actually but it's not but i think i think what is frustrating and it's even frustrating for me too in getting ready for these episodes is that you want to look at it in this way where it's like okay that one thing explains the entire reality and it's just not it's just not that it's way it's not that simple yeah I, I was uh part of my summer research um i was in in central asia but also in parts of Eastern Europe, um, looking at what was happening in Ukraine as closely as possible. And I was talking to people from the Czech Republic who said, uh, if we did not join NATO, we would have been invaded too. I mean, you talk to any Pole, any Estonian, any person from the Czech Republic, and they will tell you, God, it was the greatest, smartest decision we ever made. That Had we not entered NATO, again, of their own volition, of their own agency, they exist as separate countries, newsflash, Ukraine is a country, right? They have a choice. They wanted to join, and they want to join. In fact, again, I think, again, it's showing a sort of a, a restraint rather than an emotional style of leadership, Biden said no, right? Biden went to the NATO summit in Vilnius not that long ago and said, we don't think it's time yet. You're still not there yet. And it's, you know, maybe it's a diplomatic device. Maybe it's just kicking the can down the road. But again, there's, there's, I think um, it's very important that in, in this conversation, which is so Americanized and so, so uh, minimizes the role in the agency of, of, of these other places, to, to divide up the world between Russian interests and U.S. interests, is, it's, it's so 19th century, right? Yeah. That is such imperial thinking. Yeah. Ukraine had a choice. The Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, they wanted to join. They joined. Um, and that's not to say that NATO is a perfect, perfect organization. It now has also, since we last spoke, Sweden, You're right. yeah. Finland on the way. So you have, um, and, and then Turkey's role is, is complicated in that alliance. But I do think you're right. It's it as the closer we get to November 2024, the more overly, as we were saying, simplistic mm-hmm. and even grotesque some of these rationale and, and discussions are going to be. Yeah. I think Armenia is, yeah. for me, the the biggest lesson I took from it was the power of when the U.S. government wants something flowing in the media and they don't, seeing that different, like, like it's, there's a reason why, like, no one knows what's going on in Armenia. Like, you have to, like, go on, like, the deepest crevice of the new york times to even like see that shit in the sense that like i i Mm. it's just it's fascinating to see Mm. the machine at like because you don't you don't you don't really get it from everything that you do see you really start to understand like the media machine from like what you like if there's something happening on the same level of importance um, uh, uh, as something else that's like getting no media time, no real coverage. You have to ask yourself like, why? And it's just been fascinating seeing, like, yeah. I mean, what when the U.S. wants Ukraine to be like the forefront of the conversation, it can it can happen real quickly. And with Armenia, like, uh, uh, you know, it's yeah. It's just been so the the lack of coverage. I think has been very intentional. Right. No, that's interesting because, yeah, the more cynical folks among us who look at the Ukraine situation might say, oh, um, it's in the U.S.'s interest to constantly demonize Russia and this kind of use of Russia as sort of like exercising this military muscle in the U.S., uh, that Russia is very much a part of that equation. Therefore, uh, the focus on Ukraine is is to reinforce that that militarism. Right. Mm. Um, And I, I guess I understand some of that point of view, although I know Russia, I lived in Russia, so I understand that it is threatening U.S. interests, and it is uh, led by a genocidal dictator. But you're you're absolutely right that Armenians have struggled for a, for over a century, ever since the genocide first happened in 1915, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to be seen, and they are Americans. Um, I'm talking about the community here, um, but. I, but but what's also so striking is that Ukraine is a democracy fighting a dictatorship and Armenia is a di- democracy fighting a dictatorship. Azerbaijan is swimming in petrodollars. It's run by the same man for 20 years, Ilham Aliyev, who has built museums filled with mannequins that grotesquely portray Armenians um, in some of the most racist 
fashion that you can imagine. Yeah. So very much hearkening to towards the the fascism and the the neo Nazism that we talk about in other places. It's just not seen and it's not heard and it's not dealt with. And I should mention in all of this, of course, I want to make sure I'm on the record saying that the Azerbaijani civilians that were pushed out of Nagorno-Karabakh also have a legitimate right to, 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 to their land and their concerns. There are hundreds of thousands of them that had to flee have to also be factored in and any solution should respect human rights and the, the human rights of all citizens mm-hmm. and all civilians. But overall, we, we see who's doing what to whom. Mm-hmm. And we can name names, and we can name and shame, and we have to do that as much as possible. So I really appreciated um, what the ICC prosecutor, former ICC prosecutor, had to say. And by the way, you know, he's an interesting guy. He comes out of Argentina, and he forged his early career uh, holding government officials in Argentina accountable for their human rights violations during the 70s when they were disappearing their political opponents um, throwing them out of helicopters and, and, and extrajudicial killings. So this is someone that uh, whose own career and his past was burnished in the struggle for human rights. And so it's a it's a genuine, very important moment of solidarity. Mm-hmm. It's really important that a, a non-Armenian, you know, yeah. is saying this yeah. about what's happening to to the Armenian community. So I know that that's as deeply felt among my Armenian friends and colleagues. And and I also want to do everything I can. I was in Armenia after I saw you um, thinking also together with a lot of other lawyers about what we need to do to protect this fledgling democracy mm-hmm. from, again, from, from being invaded again, mm-hmm. from, from being extinguished. And uh, it's very inspiring. You know, I mean, I think, I think, I think so many people in this country, we gain so much um, by, by understanding more up close how youth, how young people are trying to build a brighter future where they are and yeah. deal you know, with this struggle for democracy. And in many ways, we're very similar. We're also dealing with the specter of authoritarianism. Yeah. We've got you know, January 6th. We've got all this, as we just said, propaganda thrown in our face all day, every day. How do we deal with it? How do we create our, our media diet um, to filter out the garbage yeah. and build something constructive in our society? I think, you know, it's probably just worth saying, like, uh, uh, you're, as an American, all of this will make, it makes so much more sense if you actually understand America's role in the the world and, and understand it in a way that, like, to some degree, American officials probably don't want you to understand it in the sense that, like, with the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and us talking about, you know, the influence of, of oil and money in this, like, I think it's just so important because I think people vote and look at stuff the way, I think they look at things from a very human perspective, and I don't blame them because, we're, like, we are human, but, like, you know, on a daily basis, in a in a very like sociopathic way, hmm. like just objectively, this isn't even a knock. Just objectively, every day you have to remember these politicians wake up every single day and are like, "How do we? How uh, do we gain some type of leverage, advantage, something in the world?" and I just, I just, I feel like just that is just step one of understanding, like, yeah, like, why are we giving Ukraine money? Like, why, like, like, what read between the lines when it says, like, yeah, we got to go to this part of the world and like spread our democracy. You know what I mean? Like, you got to, like, because I think as an, like, I understand why Americans get pissed off. Well, one, if you're like only watching Fox or CNN or some shit, that, 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 but like, also just thinking that like um that this is all coming from a human place that like they think like people are like like people are really just sitting in a room and being like oh man we got to do this because like that's the right thing it's like dude like follow the money learn the history um be, because in getting ready getting ready for episodes like this it just it's always such a clear it's like yeah like unfortunately 
uh, uh, why don't you hear more about um, Armenia and, and uh, Azerbaijan conflict? Like, unfortunately, it really is as simple as trade relationships and money. Like, it really, and that that's that's shitty. And like, th those are the ways and where you can actually rightfully criticize your own government. Like, like that that like these are. You know, and it, and it's or, or the media. Yeah, yeah, or or the media. But I and I and I, I don't know, man. I just I, I just want to just kind of say that as like a, in terms of just everything we've talked about so far, is that like, because I, I think something that's so, uh, on the way here today, I was just thinking about all this from an American perspective, and why people are so pissed off, um, and I think. I think the anger comes from feeling like you're being spun around and like you just don't know what like the, 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 like the forces that are doing this to you. As an American, like you're just, you're just confused on a daily basis. Like you don't know what the fuck is true. You don't like you just in like this sense of like not knowing what's going on. I now understand why we're so easy to manipulate because no one fucking yeah. knows what's going on. You know, when I, I used to study Russian literature and the two questions in 19th century Russian literature that were the most, like the, the paradigmatic questions that come up in every book uh, by every author, the two questions that Russians always would ask about their fate and about humanity. Um, who is to blame? And what do I do? Or what do we do? And it's like, that. that is... Uh, motivating, I think, the American psyche at this time, especially when we were so disempowered in COVID, um, or there was the perception, I think, I don't, I'm not sure so much that it's a reality that we were all in lockdown for so long. It wasn't that long, in fact. But, the, but I think the sense of needing to blame someone, needing to take that sense of powerlessness and attach it to some actor and say, you did this to me, and then find some way forward, I, I think that is really haunting our conversation right now, especially uh, in the run-up to the election. And we have to deal with that. And I think the only way is to educate ourselves. It's to listen to your podcast. It's to, again, we do have access to learn about genocide. It's, 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 the, it's as easy as the click of a button. You just have to develop a diet of going to expert sources and of having respect and veneration for those that put in the time and the work and to honor those voices and to, you know, if you're going to say something about Ukraine, well, hey, you better listen to Ukrainian voice on that before you say something. Um, it's not Vivek Ramaswamy who's going to be able to tell you about Ukraine. What does he know about Ukraine? What does yeah. he know about anything? Um, or, or for that matter, the Democrats, right? I think we need to absolutely center those voices. And I think that's part of this process of decolonizing ourselves, decolonizing our studies our knowledge, our view of foreign policy, seeing all the connections between domestic militarism and international militarism, I think that's all very, very important. But we've got to have the sources of information, and and that's available to us if we do the work. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's something that's best done as a group. It's best done in conversation with, with others. Um, I mean, if I want to know something about music, I'm going to talk to you, yeah. um, you know? And yeah. so... I, I, yeah, I, I understand it's a confusing moment, um, but uh, we just can't let ourselves be overtaken by, by, by the shenanigans. Like you can't keep falling for this idea that every time we help someone outside of the country, that that is money being taken from you. Like right. it, that, well, you know, the most common assumption yeah. is that immigrants take everything, yes, right? Exactly. right? That's the that's even more widely used uh, and thrown in our faces constantly, every day, day in and day out, than the Ukraine case. And um, when the vast majority of the evidence points in the opposite direction about the enormous benefit that immigrants bring uh, to this country, and uh, forgetting the fact that our entire country is one based on the immigrant experience and, and the idea of America mm -hmm. <laughs> is founded on immigration. Immigration, it's amazing to me how, 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 much, how many legs that narrative seems to have. And I think you're right. Um, the capitalism, the period of capitalism that we've entered is complicated for people to understand. And, and, um, and, and, and yet, 
And yet there are these signs of life, again, especially here in L.A. I know we didn't come here to talk today about the, the strikes of, you know, writers and <laughs> actors, right? But, but And it's not just that. We, you know, in my field of international relations, poli-sci, human rights, all these professors came to L.A. to, uh, to, to this major academic conference last week called the uh, APSA, the American Political Science Association. And, and the organizers decided to choose a hotel uh, where the workers were on strike, and, and um, you know, and and we here, uh, the scholars, didn't want to attend that conference in those circumstances. We wanted to show solidarity to the workers. Mm. And this is a moment where the workers' movement, I think, is responding to what you said, to this super exploitative, artificial intelligence-driven yeah. capitalist framework, which uh, requires new responses, new energy, new life, informed conversations, unions, um, you know, whether it's at Starbucks or it's at Amazon. And I, so I do think that, you know, it's those kinds of grassroots movements for social justice that that cut through this BS. That's the conversation that we should have mm-hmm. at the debates and in the media, it's taking stock of um, how people are living, what are the difficulties they're facing, and what are the connections between, what are the real connections and the trade-offs as well um, in the way our economy functions and our support for, uh, for Ukraine or Armenia for that matter. I mean, I think those conversations about controlling our society and, um, the need to update the social contract, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and make sure that we're upholding labor rights in this new, very confusing environment of AI that's causing a lot of people anxiety. You're right. And, and it distracts attention from dealing with things like genocide, which, which shouldn't be the case. <laughs> well, covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's some, it's like a good combination of depressing and inspiring. <laughs> but I hope inspiring. I yeah, hope so for sure. No, definitely mostly inspiring. And just you know, in terms of uh, I think I think knowing all this stuff, um, f- for me, it it feels empowering empowering to know that. Like we're all doing, you're you're doing your part by genuinely trying to seek the 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 real information and then voting and acting accordingly uh, to that time that you've dedicated to understanding like the truth about all this stuff that we've discussed. Whether that's um, things going on here at home in the states that are affecting you, whether financially or personally, or things going on um around the world but i think like a big point from our convo today is is um you know to do the research because the the people out there that control the the narratives the biggest thing that they're betting on is that you're not going to do that research um and that they can just kind of tell you what is going on without you know uh you really digging deep to to um verify that so um but anyway steve i appreciate you man because every every time we have one of these episodes it's uh yeah it's just always eye-opening on 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 a a number of things but seriously man thank you i want to thank you and i want to thank your listeners for engaging with this topic um and you know just guys listen to oc um because it's the type of conversation that you know is truly beneficial and I, 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 I'm sure eyes are opening and I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful to be part of that. So thanks a lot. Oh man, thank you. And uh, yeah, for everyone listening, we are uh, both grateful for that. And uh, yeah, but we're done. Time to go home. Peace. Peace.